Well, good morning. Great to be back up here with you. If you have a Bible with you, grab it and let's go to the very end, Revelation chapter 21. We'll be in Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Um, a, a few weeks ago, as we were preparing to come out here for Mount Hermon, uh, Greg very graciously, very patiently, but very persistently was asking all of us on the speaking team for the title of our midday talk. And he had to ask each of us, I believe, uh, several times. I think in the end, I'm not sure if he got any of our titles for our midday talks. The midday talk is the talk that we get to choose whatever we want to do. And it can be a little bit daunting when you have the whole Bible to choose from to figure out what you want to do. And so I was tempted to write back to Greg and, and give him the title, The Great Question. Because when he was asking, that was the great question. What am I going to talk about? And, and honestly, I, I just, I never really settled. I was struggling in my heart to determine what is it that I really want to talk about in that session. And then I got here and I sat right back there in the very first session and I saw the words on the wall behind me from Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, I am making everything new. And I knew right then what I wanted to talk about this morning. This morning we're going to talk about living from the end. And so if you will join me in prayer. Father, we turn our attention now to your word, your word which is truth, your word which is life, your word which guides our lives, and we pray, Lord, that, that we would be attentive to what it is that you have to say to us in your word, and that our lives would come more and more into conformity with it. We know, Lord, that we can't accomplish that on our own, that that is an accomplishment that, that takes place in us as your spirit continues to mold us and shape us to become more and more like your son. And so we pray that the spirit would work in our hearts and our minds and our lives this morning as we turn our attention to the end of the great biblical story and we seek to learn what it means to live from there. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. There is a path behind Magdalen College in Oxford, England, a path that's called Addison's Walk. Uh, I had the opportunity, actually, a, a few years back to walk this path, this tree-lined path with my children, my wife and my children. I was actually pushing Kathleen in the stroller, and, and you walk along Addison's Walk behind Magdalen College there in Oxford, and, and you see on one side a river that runs along and, and punters on their boats uh, going along the river. You see on the other side this beautiful meadow where there have been deer that have grazed in that meadow for centuries. Um, you see this beautiful tree-lined path. And, and I walked that path, and my mind went to a walk that took place on that path in 1931, which was a walk and a conversation between two of our greatest Christian storytellers, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Along with their friend Hugo Dyson, the three of them walked together on that path, Addison's Walk, and they began a conversation, a conversation that actually continued on into Lewis's rooms inside the college and went on to the wee hours of the morning, a conversation that... Uh, revolved around their mutual love of stories. All of them focused on teaching literature, on teaching the great stories of history. But the nature of this particular conversation was Dyson and Tolkien, who were both committed Christians, talking to Lewis, who was at the time not a believer, about the idea that the stories that they love all ultimately pointed to the story that's true. 
that the great stories of literature point to the story of the truth of the gospel. And they continued this conversation about stories until the wee hours of the morning. And then a few days later, Lewis wrote a letter to his childhood friend, Arthur Greaves. And in that letter, Lewis says, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a good deal to do with it. Two of our great Christian storytellers having a conversation about stories on Addison's Walk that changed the course of C.S. Lewis' life and in some respects changed the course of modern Christian history. He, of course, has given us the great stories, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the Lion, who is the Christ figure. He has written for us one of the great apologetic works of the 20th century, Mere Christianity, and and on and on, many of the other great books that you've read from C.S. Lewis. Stories are powerful. In fact, I would say that I think four of the most powerful words in the English language when put together are once upon a time. You say those words to a child and you've captivated their attention. They're listening. They're ready. They're waiting. And the reality is is that we as human beings are shaped by stories. I think we're all shaped by two kinds of stories. The stories we live and the stories we live into. The stories we live are our own personal biographies. It's the the collection of uh, formative experiences and relationships that have made us who we are, the stories that we live. But I think that we're also shaped by the stories that we live into. Those are the stories that, that start before us and continue on after us, but the stories that give our lives a sense of coherence and direction and meaning. And as believers, we're meant to be shaped by the biblical story. The primary means by which God has revealed himself to humanity is story. That more of the Bible is narrative than than any other genre. God has revealed himself to us through a story. And I think, in fact, a case can be made that, that the Bible is, in fact, one large story. And we are story formed people. The philosopher Alistair McIntyre, in his book After Virtue, one of the most important philosophical works of the middle of the 20th century, says this, man, humanity, is in his actions and practice, as well as in his fictions, essentially a storytelling animal. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part Eugene Peterson, in his book, Eat This Book, tells us that spiritual theology does not so much present us with a moral code and tell us, live up to this, nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this. As important as those, both of those are, the primary means by which God has revealed himself in Scripture is narrative. Peterson says, the biblical way is to tell a story and to invite us, live into this This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being, living into the story. And this morning, I want us to look at the very end of the biblical story, Revelation 21 and 22, and in particular, we'll 
zoom in on a few verses from Revelation chapter 21. This is a scene that comes at the very end, the culmination of the biblical story. You're not really supposed to read the the end of the story without reading all the rest of it. So in some sense, you have to presume that we know the rest of it, but we come to the very end of the story. And there is a scene that happens at the end of the story that I think puts everything else in perspective. Some of you maybe remember the movie that came out a few years ago from M. Night Shyamalan called um, The Sixth Sense. Um, I'm not recommending the movie necessarily, but if you know the movie, you know there is a scene that happens at the very end of the movie that puts everything that's come before it into a whole new perspective. And I think there's some sense in which that's what we find when we come to the end of the biblical story, that what we find here in these closing two chapters gives us an important perspective on how to read everything that's come before it. And shape the lives that we live as we seek to live into this story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Creation and Fall, says the church of Christ bears witness to the end of all things. It lives from the end. It thinks from the end. It acts from the end. It proclaims its message from the end. The end of the story is supposed to shape our lives today. Dallas Seminary has a rich heritage of teaching on biblical eschatology. And I'm so thankful for the way in which I have been shaped by that rich heritage. But sometimes our tendency is to focus a lot of attention on things like timelines and sequence of events. And in no way do I want to diminish the importance of those things. I have my timelines, my sequence of events, and and they fall in line with the historic teaching of Dallas Seminary. But... I don't think the primary reasons that were given biblical eschatology are for timelines and sequences of events. I think the primary reasons that were given biblical eschatology are two things. Hope and ethics. Hope, that is, we're given biblical eschatology, we're given biblical teaching about the end of all things to sustain us in times of trouble, of struggle, of pain and suffering, that that we're given hope because we know how the story ends. We know how God is going to be faithful to his promises. And it's knowing how the story ends, it's knowing the faithfulness of God to keep his promises that sustains us in hope as we live through the struggles of life in a fallen world where things so often are not the way they're supposed to be. Biblical eschatology gives us hope. And second, biblical eschatology shapes our ethics. That is, biblical eschatology teaches us how we're to live now in light of the way that we know the story is going to end. That our task is to live in this day in such a way that points ahead to the reality of that day. There is coming a day when God's rule, God's reign comes in its fullness and the culmination of all things. And that we, as God's people, are to live now as a sign and a foretaste of that great day which is to come. A sign that points to head that says, this is coming, be ready. And a foretaste that gives people glimpses of what that day is going to look like, bringing glimpses of that day into our day. I think the church is supposed to be like a movie trailer for the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. 
right? A movie trailer, you had that experience where you're sitting in a dark theater and the, that first trailer comes on before whatever the feature is that you're there to see. And that trailer comes on and you're just taken. You're, you're engrossed. You're captivated by this trailer. And it, and it ends at the end of the trailer and you turn to the person sitting next to you and you're like, we got to see that, all right? And that's what the church is supposed to be. A, a sign pointing ahead, a foretaste, giving glimpses today of the reality which is to come. This is what it means for us to think from the end and to live from the end. And so I want us to look at the end of the biblical story. Revelation chapter 21. And if you read with me there the first five verses, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. John begins by saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John, as he sees this vision of the the future, this vision of the culmination of the biblical story, he sees a renewed material creation. New heaven and new earth. Throughout the Bible, you'll find the pairing of heaven and earth together. The two things go together, heaven and earth. But heaven is God's place and earth is ours. And now what we find is this renewed material creation, new heaven and new earth. When John uses this language, he's drawing on biblical language that you find for the first time in Isaiah the prophet. And um, you find this language in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 through 19. The Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Isaiah the prophet anticipates a coming day. When this world that we inhabit is, is so, so restored, so um, renewed as to, to be able to talk about it as though it is altogether new, a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what John envisions at the end of the biblical story, a renewed material creation, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, some of you went and hung out like our family did at the beach yesterday, and you had a great time like our family did, although the water was really cold. I didn't get any further than my knees because it was really cold. My kids got a little further in but didn't always get all the way under because it was really cold. But some of you love the beach, right? There's mountain people and there's beach people. That's the great thing about coming to California. You can get both right here. And you might read that and go, well, that's... That kind of sounds a little disappointing. There's no longer any sea. What's that all about? Well, I, I think part of what we have to recognize is that 
the sea is used throughout the Bible um, as a way of uh, an imagery for chaos and destruction. Among Israel's neighbors, they actually viewed the seas as, as these gods, and then the creation emerges from the chaos of the sea. There's one uh, ancient story among Israel's neighbors of the material creation actually created as a result of a conflict between two gods, Marduk, this male god, and, and Tiamat, the female god. The female god is the goddess of the sea, and Marduk kills Tiamat and, and creates material creation from her corpse, this sea goddess. And so among Israel's neighbors, the sea was viewed as this place of, of chaos and destruction and death. And, and what you find is the biblical writers sometimes draw upon that imagery to talk about chaos and destruction and death represented by the sea. And I think part of what's going on here in Revelation 21 is a way of saying all that is gone. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This image of a new Jerusalem, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Did you realize that there are 74 times in the Old Testament prophets where they anticipate a coming day in which Jerusalem is made new? The, 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 the biblical prophets, when they anticipate this great day that is to come, when God sets the world right, when he, when he establishes everything the way that it's supposed to be, one of the ways in which they speak of that is a new Jerusalem. And now John says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, why a new Jerusalem? What, what, what's the significance of Jerusalem? Well, what's in Jerusalem? Talk to me. The temple. And, and what's the heart of the temple? The Holy of Holies. And, and what, in biblical way of thinking, is the significance of the Holy of Holies? It's, it's the dwelling place of God. Here we have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, this is interesting. At the end of the biblical story... Up there comes down here. All my life, I thought the whole point of the story was for down here to get up there. But at the end of the biblical story, what we see is up there comes down here. I asked Steve earlier in the week if he would sing that wonderful hymn, This Is My Father's World. It's my favorite hymn. I've asked my best friend to sing it at my funeral one day. And uh, it's my favorite hymn because I heard it for the first time. Probably not the first time I'd actually sung it, but the first time I really heard it. I heard it at the funeral of a mentor of mine, a man named Harry Burleson. And, and Harry, probably more than anybody else, taught me the truth that's articulated so beautifully in that hymn about seeing God in the beauty of his creation. This is my father's word. The, the birds their carols raise. In the rocks and grass, I, I hear him pass. He, he speaks to me everywhere. There's that wonderful line that says that he shines in all that's fair. And friends, I, I think we could just spend the rest of our time talking about the significance, the implications of that little line from that hymn. He shines in all that's fair. I think it would change our lives if we really begin to see and engage the world around us with that kind of lens. 
He shines in all that's fair. He is the joy behind everything joyful, the delight behind everything delightful, the beauty behind everything beautiful. And nothing silly like the rocks and grass are God themselves, right? That's just silly. But the recognition that God is the one who has made this glorious, beautiful creation, and creation speaks of his grandeur, his glory, his goodness, that he shines in all that's fair, I don't know about you, but the other night when Dr. Murphy was talking about chips and salsa and the way chips and salsa go together, I was getting hungry, right? Um, we actually, we picked up some groceries, and one of the things that we have in our room is chips and salsa. They go together. And one of the things that we love in, in Texas, Tex-Mex food, where you go and get chips and salsa as the appetizer, and then you wait for the fajitas to come out. I believe that fajitas are a sign that God really loves us, Right? <laughs> Because he shines in all that's fair. Did you know that you have 10,000 taste buds on your tongue? 10,000 taste buds. The only reason that I can think of to explain that is God really loves you. He shines in all that's fair. It would change our lives if we really began to see and engage the world around us with that kind of lens. But what really struck me on that day at Harry's funeral was when we got to that last verse. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that, oh, the wrong seems off so strong. God is the ruler yet. And on that day, the wrong seemed strong indeed. Because here we were burying my mentor only a couple of hundred yards from where not that long before we had buried my dad. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, will be satisfied. And earth and heaven be one. John says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now with the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, there's two little words that you need to pay careful attention to in this, that little statement. God's dwelling place and that he will dwell with them. One is a noun, one is a verb. The noun is skene. Can I hear you say that? Skene, right? The noun skene, dwelling place. The verb skenao, can you say that? Skenao, right? Skenao, to dwell with. What's interesting is that little noun skene, dwelling place, shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament with reference to one thing in particular, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. That little verb, skenao, it's the verb that we find in the book of John, in chapter one, when John writes, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling, right, tabernacled, skenaoed among us. 
Christ who was the dwelling place of God in his body. And now we come to the end of the biblical story. We see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and he will dwell, he will make his dwelling place with them. He will dwell with them. And then three times in the space of these little sentence, John uses the word with. Unfortunately, in the NIV, one of them is translated among. I don't know why they do it. Same Greek word, with, with, with. John's trying to make a point. He will dwell with them, with them, with them. The personal presence of God pervading the renewed material creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Can I I geek out with you for just a minute on this idea? Will you you hang with me? You're going to jump on my Bible. It's across the page, the other page, a little further on in Revelation 21 when John actually talks about the dimensions of this new Jerusalem, this city that he sees coming down out of heaven from God. Jump over to verse 15, Revelation 21, 15. John had talked about this idea that he has an angel who's accompanying him, and verse 15 says, and the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. Okay, you got that? The shape of the city is a square. As long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. Now you're all sitting there going, 12,000 stadia, are you kidding me? but you're not doing that, are you? Because you don't really know how long a stadia is, do you? 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. The distance from Mount Hermon to Dallas, I checked this morning, 1,456 miles. 12,000 stadia from here to Dallas. And it's as long as it is wide. 1,400 miles that away. 1,400 miles that away. That's a big city, isn't it? You ever seen a city like that? No. But watch this. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Wait, what? This city is 1,400 miles that away, 1,400 miles that away, and 1,400 miles that away. What's the shape? It's a cube, a giant 1,400 mile cube. What on earth is happening? Let's keep reading. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And the angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it's 1,400 miles that way, and 1,400 miles that way, and 1,400 miles that way, and it's gold. A giant gold cube. What on earth is happening here? Well, whenever you see something in the Bible, and you're not quite sure what's going on, 
a good question to ask is, has I, have I seen anything remotely like this before? And what you find is if, if you look in the Bible for a cube, you'll only find one that I'm aware of. And, oh, by the way, it's covered in gold. First Kings chapter 6, verse 20. The inner sanctuary, the holy place, the the holy of holies. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long and 20 wide and 20 high. And he overlaid the inside with pure gold. And he also overlaid the altar with cedar. In 1 Kings chapter 20, we have the description of the inner sanctuary and the holy of holies, the holy place of the temple, the dwelling place of God. And it is a gold cube. And we come to the end of the biblical story, Revelation 21. We see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a giant gold cube. Now, when I say earth, or when I say world, there's a particular image that comes to your mind, right? And if I say earth, you you get an image in your head. And it's an image of a big ball floating in black space, right? A lot of blue and then some brown, right? We all have this sort of common mental image of earth or world. Um, That image that's so common to all of us when we think of earth has really not been available for all that long. Only since we were able to send cameras up into space to take that picture is that image available to us. In John's day... In John's first century imagination, the size of the known world was about 12,000 stadia, about 1,400 miles. We, we hear this imagery, we think of this giant gold cube sticking out of the side of that big round ball. But, but in the first century imagination, this is a giant, world-encompassing, holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. He will make his dwelling place with them. He will dwell with them. He will be with them, with them, with them. The personal presence of God with his people in the renewed material creation. And then back in verse four. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It's a beautiful image. God wiping the tears away from every eye. The very last tear from every last eye. And, and this imagery that John uses here also uh, finds its uh, earlier expression in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 through 9. This may be my favorite passage in all the Bible. I say that a lot of, about a lot of passages, I think, but this one really may be the one. Where I, the prophet Isaiah says, on this mountain, that is Mount Zion, on this mountain, Yahweh Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples. Your 10,000 taste buds will be going crazy at this feast. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. I have to imagine there'll be tea and lemonade for the teetotalers. <laughs> and on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples 
the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And Yahweh, our sovereign, will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from the earth. Yahweh has spoken. And in that day, we will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is Yahweh. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There is coming a day where he will swallow up death forever and where the Lord himself will wipe every tear, every last tear from every last eye. There is coming a day when everything that is wrong with the world will be made right. Everything that is broken with the world will be made whole. Everything marred with the world will be made beautiful where he will set things right and he will swallow up death forever. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The Hebrew prophets had a word that they would regularly reach for to describe that coming reality. The Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, this word that in your English Bibles is translated as peace, and yet really that word peace in English isn't quite sufficient to capture the richness of this Hebrew word. That we hear the word peace and we think maybe of, of the absence of, of conflict, of hostility between peoples, or, or maybe a sense of inner peace, inner well-being. And, and those things certainly are involved, but there's so much more to the biblical concept of shalom than just that. To really get the biblical concept of shalom, you actually need a cluster of words, of, of peace, of wholeness, of harmony, of flourishing, of delight. One theologian has put it, everything the way that it's supposed to be. This is the idea of shalom. That same theologian, Cornelius Plantiga, describes sin as the vandalism of shalom. Right? Sin is the vandalism of shalom. Next time maybe your uh, spouse is sort of getting on your nerves, bugging you a little bit, right? You're trying to just relax and have some peace and quiet. Maybe your kids or grandkids are coming in and they're, you know, disturbing you. you, you some, Stop, you're vandalizing my shalom. <laughs> um, I remember uh, one Sunday a number of years ago, I was preparing to preach a sermon. I was going to talk about this idea of the vandalism of shalom. And I'm, I'm driving uh, down the road. I'm on a... a, a uh, access road about to get onto the freeway and, and um, I'm in the right lane and there's a left lane that's the lane to get onto the freeway and I need to get over. I realize it a little bit late in the process and there's a car right behind me on my left side and so I put on my blinker to let him know that I'm coming over. All he had to do was just tap his brakes just a little bit and there was plenty of room for me to slide right over and to go right onto the freeway. But no, right, of course. He sees my blinker and he hits the gas. Well, what's a man to do? I hit the gas too. I hit the gas, speed up, pass him, pull onto the freeway. Well, this didn't really sit really well with him, right? And so he pulls up alongside of me and he looks over at me and I look over at him and he, he makes a gesture towards me and I make a gesture back to him. Not the same gesture, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm a pastor and a seminary professor. 
I was driving down the road thinking about this nice, pleasant sermon that I was going to preach the next day. And along comes this guy and vandalizes my shalom. Of course, that's a funny story to illustrate a very serious point. Sin is the vandalism of shalom. The disruption of everything the way that God intends it to be. But there's coming a day when sin is eradicated, when death is swallowed, and when God establishes fully, finally, his shalom. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said I'm making everything new. Now, one little observation to make here. Um, A couple of times it talks about this voice that's heard, right? The voice that says I am making everything everything new. Earlier, the voice is the one that said, he will make his dwelling place with them. He will be with them, with them, with them. And both times that voice is described, it's described as the one who is seated on the throne. What kind of person is seated on a throne? A king. The, the, the idea of God as king is an idea that's woven throughout the biblical story. And of course, we get the description of the kingdom of Christ, the millennial kingdom in the previous chapters. But here in Revelation 21, this throne of God, the the throne that's described throughout the book of Revelation in heaven is now in the renewed material creation, in the new heavens and new earth. And the one who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In Psalm 10, verse 16, the psalmist says, the Lord is king forever and ever, right? The Lord is king. This is my father's world. He has a rightful claim to all of it because he's the one who created it. He is the rightful king over all the world. But from the time that sin enters the story, that which rightfully belongs to God, our king, is now contested territory. You think about when Jesus is tempted by Satan, one of the great temptations Satan takes Jesus up to the high place, shows him all the, all the kingdoms of the world, and says, I'll give them all to you. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, no, you can't. They're not yours. Right? The, this world in which we live, from the time sin enters the story, is contested territory. But when we come to Revelation 21, sin has been vanquished. The throne of God Rest in the new Jerusalem. We find the ultimate fulfillment of what we see in the prophet Zechariah. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will only be one Lord and his name, the only name. The Lord is king. But one day, his kingdom will come in its fullness. I believe there are three themes that we see woven throughout this scene at the end of the biblical story. Three great themes. First, 
the theme of God's personal presence. Then we come to the end of the biblical story. We see the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, coming down out of heaven, this um, giant gold cube, the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God with his people, with his people, with his people, the personal presence of God. That while we experience that in part now, we will experience it that day in its fullness, the personal presence of God. Second, God's just reign. That day that's coming when the fullness of God's kingdom is uncontested. Sin has been vanquished. And the one who is seated on the throne makes everything new. The just reign of God. The personal presence of God, the just reign of God. And then finally, the perfect peace of God. That everything is made right. That everything wrong with the world is made right. Everything Broken in the world is made whole. Everything marred in the world is made beautiful. The shalom, the perfect peace of God. Now the question for us becomes, what does it mean for us to live from the end? To think from the end? To act from the end? What does it mean for us to be a people who are signs who point ahead, right? What does it mean for our churches to be signs that point ahead to the personal presence of God that will come in its fullness, the, the just reign of God that will come in its fullness, the perfect peace of God that will come in its fullness, to point ahead and to be foretastes, to bring glimpses of that day into our day. My wife does some amazing work I get to talk about these kinds of things. She lives them beautifully. She works with an organization called My Refuge House. My Refuge House is a, um, a home in Cebu, Philippines, that does restorative aftercare for girls that have been rescued from sex trafficking. These little girls have experienced unimaginable horror. You want to talk about the vandalism of shalom, right? And they have girls in their home that are 11 and 12 years old, Girls that they work with that are younger than that, even little babies that they've worked with, doing restorative aftercare with little girls whose lives have been so deeply vandalized. That is a sign and a foretaste of the world to come. And friends, the challenge for you and for me is to think about where we live to think about our community, to think about our nation that right now is so divided and so contentious, to think about our families, to think about our churches, and to say, God, what would it mean, what might it look like for me, for us to live as signs and foretastes of that which is to come? What would it mean for me and for us to live from the end? Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for these, my friends, some friends that I haven't gotten a chance to meet, but brothers and sisters in Christ nonetheless. Thank you for this time that we've had together this week, for the chance that you've given me to just open your word and to try to offer some insight and encouragement. I pray for all of us that you might, um, that you might lay on our hearts what it means for us to live from the end, 
what it might mean for us to be signs and foretastes of that which is ultimately to come, this great hope that is ours in Christ. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that, oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied. Earth and heaven be one. There is coming a day when everything wrong with the world will be made right. Everything broken with the world will be made whole. Everything marred with the world will be made beautiful. Help us to be a people who live our lives today with great hope and with an ethical life shaped by this vision of the end. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.